Hello and welcome to the first episode of Astro Magnet. I'm Arush Ramadurai. And I am Ishan Chakraborty. And today we're going to be interviewing Professor Territory Wangjarad, Assistant Professor of Physics at Tufts University in Medford, Massachusetts. Welcome, Professor Wangjarad. Um, so when did you first get interested in physics? Oh yeah, so well, first, uh, thanks for having me on and um, yeah, uh, and chatting. Uh, chatting with me. So, um, yeah, so my path to physics was kind of indirect. Like, uh, I, I did kind of have an interest in general uh, growing up in, in science. And I, I do remember reading, um, you know, sort of popular science physics books like Brian Greene's uh, books, Elise Mullen's uh, book. Um, but I think when I entered college, I primarily wanted to go into biology and was probably thinking. Uh, that I would go into a career in medicine. And then that's because I, you know, I, I, and that's what my father did. And um, I grew up in kind of a smaller town. Um, and so I didn't really know what a career in science uh, could be other than medicine. Um, but then when I got to college, I took uh, freshman organic chemistry. And, you know, it's not that it was you know, difficult and it's like, oh, I'm never going to be a biologist or a doctor, and, but it was. Um, but it's just that the, the professor there taught it in a very um, different manner, I think, than what is typically done. Um, he started with the history of chemistry for one, but the second part of the unit was he tried to teach us quantum mechanics um, and so that we could understand, you know, the molecular the molecular orbitals of the different molecules and, and therefore understand sort of the, the physics behind some of the reactions for the, the behind the organic chemical reactions. Um, and so when he taught us, tried to teach us you know, quantum mechanics that, you know, completely confused me. I didn't understand at all what, what was going on. And that really inspired me then to learn more about it and start to take um, more physics. And so from there, um, yeah, I started to take more physics classes, and in my sophomore year, I went over to uh, the chair of the department and asked, is there any research I, I can get involved in, right? And, um, and so that, yeah, then I joined a group that was working on uh, dark matter, uh, searching for dark matter using these detectors called noble liquid detectors. And, and from there, I was basically uh, hooked on uh, do, doing physics, right? Thinking about, you know, what are the fundamental laws and fundamental particles that exist and what kind of experiments we can do to try and, you know, fill in the gaps of our knowledge on the subject. You know, we, we know that our um, standard model is incomplete, that there are particles out there that we don't uh, understand and foreign forces such as dark matter and dark energy. Um, and eventually from here, you know, these noble liquid detectors, this technology uh, kind of has a related technology where um, you can use it to look for uh, neutrinos. And that's the particle I study now. So I kind of drifted over from the dark matter world uh, into doing a neutrino experiment. And you know, there's a lot of open questions there uh, in terms of um, neutrino physics. And so that's where, that's where I ended up. So uh, is your main focus of research right now neutrinos? Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah, so as, as I said, um, there's still a lot to, to find out about neutrinos. Uh, so just to, you know, uh, 
uh, gives some background on neutrinos. They're one of the fundamental particles in the standard model. They have no electric charge and they interact only via the weak force and gravity. So in all intents and purposes, if you wanna do experiments, you have to interact with them through this weak force. And as you might guess from that name, that implies that they interact very, very rarely with other matter, right? Uh, so the typical statistics is that like a neutrino at a, a, you know energies around those produced by the sun can travel through like a light year of lead without interacting uh, with it, right? Uh, very, very weakly uh, interacting particle. Right. And so, you know, and because of that, we were just kind of having the technology to be able to understand and, 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 experiment, and do experiments with this uh, uh, particle, you know, with, with high statistics. And, but one of the things that uh, folks learned in the last, I guess it's two decades now, sort of the beginning of the millennium, is that neutrinos have a small, a very, very small, but non-zero mass. And that was somewhat of a surprise, depends on who you ask. But... Um, but this discovery has been the focus of, you know, particle, of lots of particle physicists, including myself, you know, about phenomenon around where does the neutrino get its mass? Because it's possible that, uh, you know, the neutrino uh, might get its mass in a different way than the other uh, particles that we know about. And that, that'd be very exciting. And that's, you know, because we're hoping that also, you know, that, if it's a new mechanism, that will tell us a little bit more about, you know, how the laws of physics uh, work, right? Um, you know, in, in ways beyond ways that we currently understand. Um, we also have a bunch of experiments with neutrinos that show um, anomalies. So we set up an experiment. We always make a prediction of what we should, will see, right? So that we can understand we see something new. And, you know, several past experiments see disagreements with uh, the prediction. Um, some of them see more neutrinos than they expect. Some of them see less neutrinos than they expect. Uh, but these are all intriguing and, and we see it um, in several experiments. Now, the answer to all these anomalies is that, you know, neutrinos physics is hard, right? You usually can only collect a small amount of events uh, over, over, over time. And it could be just, it's just difficult. But it could also be signs of new physics, right? And so right now, again, we know our standard model is incomplete and we're, you know, we're hoping that since we don't know, um, you know everything about the neutrino, maybe uh, it will point us to uh, uh, yeah, so some of these uh, new, new laws that we know have to, have to be out there. So why should people understand how neutrinos behave why should people understand? So, I mean, yeah, um, of course, it's just, you know, it's just part of the general pursuit of trying to understand, you know, everything that we can about how the universe works, right? Um, you know, it's one of the, uh, uh, it's one of the fundamental particles. It's actually, it's also one of the most abundantly made particles in the universe, right? So the details of the properties of neutrinos actually have effects, um, that one could, uh, in principle, observe in the sort of structure of the universe, sort of like, you know, what's the distribution of the size of galaxies and how far is apart their space, you know, the neutrino is actually, the properties of neutrino is important in, in our uh, cosmological model of, of the universe. Um, in terms of practical applications, right, uh, you know, the neutrinos interact very weakly and and because of that, they not might, might not be, you know, applications for 
Chinos as of yet, right? Um, I can think of a couple that they're like, I should, but I should be very clear that they're very speculative, right? So neutrinos, um, they interact by the weak force. And this is the force that is uh, responsible, is involved in the decay of radioactive nuclei, right? So whenever you have decaying uh, nuclei, they produce uh, you know, neutrinos. And, and you know, where do you see a lot of radioactive decaying nuclei? Um, is in you know nuclear reactors and things like this. So, so people have proposed to use neutrinos as reactor monitors. Like you know you can measure the spectrum of neutrinos and the amount of neutrinos that come. So when I say spectrum, the energies of neutrinos and the number of neutrinos coming out of a reactor, right? And, and in principle, you can use that to tell what kind of fuel um, uh, is being burned in the reactor, right? And so you know we want to make you know is there a high content of uh, certain isotopes of uranium that produce uh, plutonium, for example, right? You can, in principle, tell if there's a high content of plutonium in a reactor. And so, you know, there may be situations where you want to tell if, you know, if people are trying to make plutonium in order to make uh, nuclear weapons, one could, in principle, use neutrinos to monitor, monitor these things. Um, the even more speculative application is that neutrinos, because they interact so rarely, right? Uh, they can be used to point back to uh, objects that are very, very far away from you. So interstellar objects, right? So if for whatever reason, um, you know, you want to try to communicate between planets. Now remember, right, you know, you have, a, you have a neutrino which can now travel near the speed of light, but unlike a photon, which of course travels at the speed of light, um, won't really interact with anything you know, on its, on its way, you know, to, to where you, you pointed at it, you know, unlike a photon, right, which interacts by a right. electromagnetic force, and so it can be absorbed, can be scattered uh, off of dust and things like that. So if you want to send a signal, you can try to do it with neutrinos. However, you know, yeah, that is very unlikely from, you know, my point of view to ever be useful. But, uh, you know, there has been example demonstrations of neutrino communications. They have used the beams, the neutrino beams at Fermilab to send a little message. Uh, you know, it was only several hundred meters, right? And, and I've heard folks about using neutrinos to communicate between, you know, financial centers like New York and, and London, where I think technically you'd be able to have a slightly faster signal than, you know, sending light through fiber underneath the ocean. So if you're trying to do hyper, you know, fast speak, you know, high, really, really fast high frequency trading, you could, you know, use neutrinos to communicate for that. But again, um, that would be very impractical. Of course, if someone wanted to, you know, spend the money to build such a device, that would be a very useful scientific tool. And, you know, we would definitely, the community would definitely make use of it to do science, but yeah. So you talked about the challenges that go along with detecting neutrinos. Can you talk a little bit about the instruments you use to circumvent those challenges? Yeah, right. Yeah, so one neutrino interacts very, very rarely, right? So the way we get around it is we have to um, make many, many neutrinos. That's one way. And then have all those many neutrinos try to hit a very large target. And in fact, we do both, right? So. Um, you know, we have various sources of neutrinos, um, but one common source that folks use is to make them via accelerators, uh, where they can make a beam of neutrinos, so a very high, intense source of neutrinos. And then we point them at detectors. So, um, you know, these detectors are often fairly large, 
uh, you know, on the small side is the experiment that I uh, work on a lot these days. It's called Microboon. It's about the size of a bus, but it contains a lot, a very dense liquid, uh, so a cryogenic uh, liquid argon, right? Which is, I think, about eight times denser than than water. Um, and, but that's kind of on the small side of these detectors. These detectors are getting scaled up to be the sizes of, uh, you know, buildings that you put in caverns. Uh, in graduate school, I worked on an experiment called um, Super Kamiokande, which is this 40 meter tall cylinder of water that they hide underneath the mountain, right? So that's, you know, so typically when we want to do experiments, we have to make these, you know, building science detectors that we fill with some, some you know, hopefully cheap material. Right, in order to be able to get enough events to do the to do the experiments that we want. Uh, so, how does the detector um, help uh, detect the neutrinos or detect the particle interactions? Right. Yeah. So. So in general, so the neutrino detectors, like I said, the one the, the big thing is like size. So, having a lot of at a nuclei that for neutrinos to hit, right, is important. Um, so yeah, so you have these big detectors. The other thing is that the, the materials that you fill the detector with have to give you a signal that you can use to see um, the neutrino. So neutrinos, like I mentioned before, are a neutral. They have no electric charge. And, and because of that, they pass through matter without doing anything, right? Uh, if you have like an electron, which has uh, you know, a negative charge, or a proton, which has positive charge, if you shoot that through any kind of matter, like the electromagnetic, that particles interact with the electromagnetic force and leave behind lots of, uh, leave behind, it's going to couple with the matter and leave uh, behind uh, some energy in, into the material that usually produces um, some charge and some light, for example. Um, so that's what charged particles do when they move through matter. Neutrinos, as I mentioned, are neutral, and so they don't. So they uh, travel without a trace through any kind of material. So yeah. So how do you see them? So what we do is we, um, we yeah we wait for the neutrino to interact typically with the nucleus, and then it will produce a charged particle, right? And then the charged particle then travels to the detector and leaves behind uh, energy in the form of again charge and light, which we can can collect and and measure, right? And you know different. You know, different detectors have different designs to make sure that you know we can collect that light and charge, either one or both, efficiently, right? And that we can uh, reconstruct the spatial patterns of that energy that's deposited by the particles in order to, you know, better infer the properties of the neutrino, right? And so there's you know different types of detectors that uh, detect you know this this information in different ways, right? Uh, in order to be able to you know find the neutrino events because you know even if you have a big detector it's going to be very the, the amount of events that neutrinos create are going to be fairly rare right compared to other possible things that can happen so for example you have a background where um, you get uh, it's a particle called a muon you can think of it as like a, a heavier electron right but anyway these muons they, they get created in the upper atmosphere and they fall down into the earth um, and they can pass through your detector right and they'll leave behind charge and light um, and so you have to have enough information to be able to say that this is a background event, a muon event, versus you know the charge and light pattern that comes out of a neutrino interaction. Uh, but you know another technique for detectors 
uh, neutrino detectors as young. So they're big, they get the charge and light in a way that they can identify neutrinos. But then you also put them way underground. So you don't have to worry about these kind of backgrounds um, and, you know, uh, you know, and reduce them as much as possible. So yeah, so putting them underground is also a big, a big technique for checking neutrinos. Experience like a lot of challenges, like detecting neutrinos or like sifting through data yeah, sifting through data can be a, a, a challenge because again, usually the neutrinos are the subdominant um, component of, of, of your data, right? And, and so to that end, you know, uh, folks are always working on different techniques, right, to, to do that. Uh, so for example, um, my group, uh, you know, we, we focus on neutrinos, but a lot of our effort is in trying to analyze the data better to, to better find the neutrinos in our data. And the experiment that I, I said we worked on microboon uses a type of detector called the liquid argon time projection chamber, right? Um, you know, that's a, that you can think of it as basically a, a very uh, uh, nice camera that can take pictures of the tracks left behind by charged particles. Um, and, and so because the data that the detector produces is basically this nice high resolution image, we can use a lot of the machine learning techniques that uh, have been developed in the, in the past uh, five to 10 years to analyze the data. You know, yeah, these are things like convolutional neural networks where, you know, which um, have been used for natural images to, you know, classify them or find, you know, particular instances of cats or dogs inside of images. You know, we can use the similar techniques, adapt the similar techniques to find, you know, to classify a, a, a a portion of the image as either being from a certain type of particle or neutrino interaction, or using these, you know, um, neural networks to identify locations in the image where we think a particle might be or a neutrino might be, uh, for example. So, yeah. So that you know, I think that's one very active area of research across the field is applying these new machine learning techniques to um, neutrino physics data. And then, uh, at least that's where you know our group spends a lot of our effort. Uh, what do you feel is your the favorite part of your job? Yeah, I think you know. Um, so yeah, that's uh, many, 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 many parts that are that are great. Um, uh, yeah, you know, I think it's nice to be able to work in a in a field where you feel like you contribute to some of the fundamental understanding of our universe, right? Of course, that's very slow going, right? Uh, you know, it takes several years to be able to um, you know, quote unquote, make measurements and, and, you know, and say something, um, you know, new, right. So, or yeah, or just make measurements and see the results of all your work. Right. So, you know, those, the yeah, results are kind of several years apart. And so in between then, right. Um, it's, it's, you know, what, what are the things that one enjoys about the day-to-day -day work? And that is, you know, I think it has to be working with, um, you know, you know, students on different uh, topics, right? Like, um, you know, like I said, in our group, we work uh, in applying these deep learning techniques to analyzing our data. And so that involves sort of, you know, trying to stay on top of the latest um, deep learning research and, you know, you know, along with, you know, working with students to do that and trying to sift through all the different techniques and think about, okay, can we, how can we use it, right? To better analyze their data, and then you know the fact of just you know trying to implement that, right? So you know you know working with a team to sort of stay on cutting edge, you know trying to keep 
keep up with cutting edge research in order to make progress. You know, that's kind of, you know, there's, there's no shortage of fun problems to work on and, you know, and, and they're, you know, have a, luckily a, a great team of, of students to work with so that, you know, so yeah, it definitely keeps things very fun on a day to day. So what advice do you have to students uh, aspiring for a career track in physics or astrophysics or some kind of science really? Yeah. Oh man. I <laughs> um, I, I would say, I think if, yeah, I think you should try to get involved with research as early as possible. Right. Um, if, if, especially if, if that's the track that you want to go down. Right. Um, you know, don't be afraid. Don't feel like you have to wait, you know, to take classes and then sort of be a relative expert before you can contribute to research. Right. A lot of the research is not the actual science. Of course, it's important to learn the foundational science, right, and, and understand, like, what are the big questions that your group is trying to ask and things like that. You know, it's important to keep track of that. But, you know, solving the, the problems the day to day, those are, you know, computer science problems. These are, these are all, you know, these are all things that you learn on the job. So you should, you know, they're, yeah, learning how to apply statistics. Yeah. And yeah, again, these are all things that you, you learn on the job rather than in class. I mean, you can learn them in class, but uh, you know, I think it helps to just get started right away. And then you also get a sense of like, you know, do you like doing research and stuff like that? So I'd say, yeah, get started as soon as you can uh, and research. And, and usually groups will, you know, are, are usually happy to uh, take students on. Um, the other thing I would say is that, um, you know, to be a good scientist, you got you know you have to try to generate new ideas, and usually most new ideas are bad, <laughs> right? And so you got to keep trying to, you know, to do that. And and the best way to generate ideas, right, is to to read what other people are doing because it helps inspire. So like I guess you know my 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 advice is to keep track to to try to keep up in reading the literature, right? Like um, you know go and read science papers, you know, and it's, and it's tough going, it's not easy. It's not something I, um, you know, I, I need to do more of, right. Uh, we all, we all need to do more of, cause it could be, it could be a tough slog, but after a while, you know, you start to understand a little bit more, uh, what the field is trying to say, you, well, you understand the jargon and the shorthand and stuff like that. Um, but that's really how you generate new ideas, right. And not, you know, not just read, uh, papers from your field, but also related fields, right. Like, uh, you know, a lot of work that we do now is basically uh, inspired by, you know, papers that come out of uh, computer science. Um, you know, if in order to make progress in physics, experimental particle physics, right, we need better ways to detect uh, particles, right? And so, uh, you know, and, and new ways of doing that will probably track in some ways advances in material science, you know. Uh, Maybe there's a new, yeah, that it gives you a new way to build a detector, right? That gives you new types of signals, right? Um, yeah, so you have to, yeah, try to read as much as you can about your field, but then also broadly, um, that's how you, yeah, you generate new ideas. Is it okay if interested high school students contacted you for advice and guidance by email? Yeah, of course, yeah. You know, um, yeah, I'm happy, of, of course, to, to um, <laughs> uh, try to give advice and, and, and things like this. Um, I just want to give a caveat that, you know, professors are very busy and some, sometimes it might take a while to get a response, but that doesn't mean, you know, I don't want to respond. I just, 
uh, might take uh, some time to get to that. But of course, I'm yeah, I'm happy to to take questions. You know, and and you know, we there are examples of uh, high school students working in their lab as well, right? Um, so you know, we're uh, you know, in general, in my lab policy is if you're willing to put in the the time, you know, we're willing to um, yeah try to find a project for Wonderful for you to work on. Well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, yeah, so that was, you. that was really great. Um, so that was Tara Trubong-Jared and he studies neutrinos at Tufts University. And to learn more about his field, check out his uh, research group website um, on our website. And we'll be back with another episode. All right, thanks.